Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Anniversary celebrations can be a lot of fun, especially with funny people. Dad's Garage Comedy Improv is celebrating 25 years of making people laugh with 25 hours of online entertainment this weekend. Artistic director John Carr and actor Amber Nash will tell us about the festivities as well as a commemorative book. First, undergraduate students from Atlanta Area Universities founded Mint in 2006. Their goal was to create a space for emerging artists to find their voices. Since that time, Mint has presented over 1,000 contemporary and experimental artists through its programs and exhibitions. Jessica Helfrecht is the interim executive director of Mint, she joins us now with Atlanta-based artist, photographer, and archivist Sierra King. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having us. I'm a huge fan. Honored to be here. Why, thank you. Now, Sierra, congratulations on winning the 2020 Open Call for Proposal from Mint. This will be your curatorial debut. Please tell us about the exhibition you proposed. Thank you, Lois. I am just so overwhelmed and excited to be able to do this, not only in a city that I grew up in, with, but with also Black women that I love. And so the exhibition is called Here, There, Everywhere. And it's a multidimensional portrait of the journey towards Black futurity that Black women across the African diaspora have been pursuing in the name of freedom. And so I came to that statement and meditated on what that was, was after reading uh, Tina Camp, she talks about how uh, we have these like pretenses and tenses in language 
of present, past, and future, right? All of our actions and everything that we're doing in the present day leads up to a future. And a lot of people talk about the future, about how it's something that may happen, or it's a possibility, or it's something that we're not really sure of. But when you speak of Black futurity, it's all of your actions and everything that you're doing in the present day is ensuring and binding that the future that you have in mind and the vision that you have for the future, it must happen. There's no doubts about it. And so I just really infused a bigger sense of hope inside of that. So because you know that what you're doing is not only creating a legacy, but it's ensuring that your community and the people that come after you are protected and the best is yet to come. Oh, we need hope. We sure need hope now. I'm intrigued with your take on futurivity and the role of the present in the future. Being present is kind of a buzz phrase. You're saying that we have an active role in what follows. Yeah, it's more of like you're being not only intentional about your actions, but you are kind of like continually actively meditating on the routines and rituals that you're doing to ensure that whatever uh, the outcome is, whether that's you want to be an entrepreneur or you want to be a mother that travels the world or someone that has a, a, a different role other than what society has uh, placed upon you, that it's going to happen because everything that you're doing is leading to that, even if you get, I guess, straight away from your path. Jessica, what aspects of Sierra's vision for this show impressed the judges above all the others? Sierra really was, hands down, the, the top juried application that came in and you can tell it's because she put so much thought into her proposal. And, you know, I've had my eye on Sierra for a while. She's done great work with Tila Studios and she's um, a person to be reckoned with in the art community. So knowing her expertise and her professionalism and then the artists that she came in with were such of a wonderful caliber and they crossed so many different mediums. It impressed all of our eight person jury. I think it's the depth and the thought that she put into it that really made her stand out. What can you tell us about some of the artists who were featured, Sierra? Like Jessica said, I've been working with uh, Tila Studios as community manager uh, for about two to three years now. And I have had the privilege and the honor to just guide Black women artists um, in the city uh, in helping them accelerate their careers. And that has afforded me like just the chance to form up and close in relationships with them about their practices and their livelihoods. Some that come to mind is uh, that I've been working with is uh, Jasmine Williams. Um, she's a printmaker. Her work is just as thoughtful as mine is. Um, how meticulous she is with her line work and also just the very techniques that she uses. And then uh, Natrice Miller, she's a photographer. Um, she's been in Atlanta for a while and I saw some of her work that I hadn't seen before and it was different from because she's a portrait and a documentary photographer. So this work that she is showing in, in this show is uh, something 
other than what people have seen from her. I really like that. And then Mwandisha Gator, she is uh, actually a, a chef and a culinary artist. And I wanted to bring a different um, definition of artist and how we define who a black woman artist is. And so I've worked with uh, Mwandisha as like catering and how she works as a chef. Um, but I understood her work is more than that. And so she's going to be doing um, an installation of food and ingredients and uh, really expanding how she uh, talks about her practice and, and what goes into um, not only the preparation of the food, but also just the importance of communion that she uh, cultivates with people when she brings her food into the space. Oh, that sounds great. Well, it is referred to as the culinary arts, and your work combines photography and archiving. Would you take us through your creative process putting together work? First, I'm a photographer. I'm always observing things. I'm always, even without my camera, I'm always like taking pictures in my mind and seeing different things and how they informing different compositions. After the photography, you still have to go and look back at the photos. So you get put back in a place of research. And so that's kind of uh, merging where the uh, the archiving is coming in. And so uh, specifically, um, I've been researching my family's archive and the photos of my grandmother. And in those photos, she is uh, just dolled up in all of her church regalia uh, from head to toe. And um, one of the particular series that I did on with that work is I like to bring objects back into the physical space. Uh, and so I brought her church hats um, that she was wearing and photographs that I had seen, um, collected them back from my aunts and my uncles and, and tried to gather them uh, from the family. Um, and I placed them on an altar to allow people to interact with them. And so it almost becomes like a, a research to installation process. And then I documented it again. Um, and so all of these different uh, disciplines are continuously working together while I'm either making the work or looking at the work or um, trying to present the work in different ways. What a novel and um, ingenious way to present those hats. How can old objects give us further insight into the collective memories of others? I think that objects hold not only stories, but they hold reverence of the people and who they were and who, who they will be. Um, so everything that you have in your space, you've been intentional about it, I would hope. Um, and you've made choices about the things that you keep in your space. And with those choices come stories and where those things have been come stories. And so my job as an archivist is to figure out where those stories are and not only tell the stories of the photographs that the objects are presented in, but also the whole space for the individual objects. And so I think that a lot of people may feel that their space is filled with with things they don't find useful, but at one point in time, it told, it told part of their story. Mm. Jessica, right before the pandemic hit, Mint had just finished major renovation. What work was done to your gallery space? 
Wow, we touched every inch of this warehouse space, paint or building walls. So we built uh, four gallery spaces and 18 artist studios within the um, 73,000 square foot warehouse here at the Met. My goodness. And I see from your website that patrons can visit by appointment. Is that still the case? Yes. And it's been going really well. We um, got open right before COVID and then we tried to reopen for our annual exhibit on July 11th and put a whole bunch of COVID safety measurements in place, but we weren't able to have our opening reception, but I have been taking appointments for people to come, you know, in groups of one or two. And it's been, it's been happily successful that people are still wanting to come in and see the work. The pandemic has been tough on local artists. What is Mint doing to help studio artists? So we consider ourselves a family of artists and tried to help our artists as as much as we can. We did some pivoting from our physical space to an online store where we feature our exhibiting artists, but also our studio artists. We received an anonymous donation and were able to waive all of our studio artists' rent in May. So that was great. And we've just been trying to be as lenient as possible, doing partial payments, um, no late fees, and just trying to be really um, supportive of the artist as we, we all go through this uncertain time. On your website, I also saw an action plan and accountability for what Mint hasn't done regarding the promotion of African-American artists. Would you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I feel with the you know murder of George Floyd and with all the incredible protests that are going on, I think a lot of white-founded and white-led organizations are really trying to take a hard look at ourselves and how we have contributed to or been part of the systemic racism that permeates so much. So, you know, as we look back at our history, we saw that we were, you know, always very welcoming and inviting and tried to be inclusive. And I think our audience has always been really inclusive. But when we took a hard look at it, we saw, you know, we didn't have as many Black artists as we want to have or wanted to have or thought we were even having um, in our in our key program, Leap Year, was a real wake-up call to us to see that our first uh, Black artist you know, came in 2018, and that was the the fifth, you know, round of it. We had had a great record of being very inclusive of the LGBTQ community, but our our racial diversity wasn't there. So, you know, in the past two years, we've made really great strides to increase our um, the exhibiting artists that we show, and we're wage certified, so we pay our artists to exhibit at Mint so I can really track to see who we are exhibiting and who we are showing and who we are serving. So that's been great. And we have great diversity in our our studio artists now and we're increasing black members and into our executive committee on our board. So we are just trying to reach out, analyze ourselves on every aspect. Since we've moved to the West End, we've decided that all of our vendors will be from the West End. We're changing our bank to a black owned bank. And we're just trying to make actionable changes as we come up with them. And we are trying to take as much feedback and advice from our audience. Impressive and important work. 
essential now. I agree. Sierra, thinking about what we know about ourselves and what we're not aware of, your work explores the tension that exists between exterior expression, what's being displayed to the public, versus the way things really are. Would you elaborate on how that informs your work? I think that everyone has like their own exterior version of themselves and then there there's also this interior version um that they that they present to like people that they're able to be vulnerable with i think in my work i always strive to see both sides and i try to apply that not only to my work as a photographer but my work as a curator and an archivist it's more so an act of humanizing people because we get so caught up in all these different existences of people, whether you see them online or whether you see them out events and things, or whether you have some type of inkling from an interview or a something that they've written. You have all these different pieces of people, but they're not necessarily the whole, um, and they're not necessarily the, all of the human um, of that person. Would you tell us about the Instagram takeovers? Yes, um, we've had a, a great success with the Instagram takeovers. Um, we're starting a second series right now, but we started with our summer invitational, which was typically our big fundraiser for the year, but we had to do it all online because of COVID. So we um, encourage different artists to take over our Instagram for a day that were within the Summer Invitational. So it's been a great way to get new audiences to Mint and to really promote our exhibiting artists. Today, um, Jackson McCarvick from our annual jury show is doing an Instagram takeover. So it's a, it's a great way to reach new audiences and give our artists a, a bigger platform to show their work. What does Mint stand for? It doesn't stand for anything. Um, when the Georgia State students made it, they were trying to show young, emerging artists, fresh work, and they came up with mint as kind of that fresh taste, fresh a brightness that's added to recipes, kind of to imply young and new and emerging. Well, it has been very interesting talking with you, Jessica Helfrich, and Sierra King, congratulations on being the 2020 winner. I look forward to seeing your work and thank you both for talking with us on City Lights. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. What a thrill, thank you. Mint Interim Executive Director Jessica Helfrecht and artist Sierra King. You can check out her curated exhibition here, there, everywhere at the Mint, starting August 22nd. This month marks the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment, guaranteeing and protecting women's constitutional right to vote. The centennial has brought to light forgotten and little-known stories about women in our history. The Lost Girls of Paris is a novel based on the real lives of female secret agents 
during World War II. These courageous women changed the course of the war as couriers, radio operators, and aides to the resistance. Author Pam Janoff spoke with me last year about how she discovered the story of the real lost girls of Paris. I was researching ideas for my next book, uh, and I, when I stumbled upon the story of the women who had served Britain's Special Operations Executive, SOE, as it was known, was an initiative by Winston Churchill in the darkest days of World War II to set Europe ablaze, and he wanted to send agents in to engage in sabotage and subversion in occupied Europe. And originally the agents were men, but at some point the men became too easily detected on the streets of France, and so they decided to deploy women. And the stories that I learned about the women who served SOE really informed and inspired the Lost Girls of Paris. The book begins with the discovery of an abandoned suitcase in Grand Central Station. That opening chapter is titled Grace. What do we learn about her? Grace is sort of an unusual character, I think. It is 1946 Manhattan, and Grace Healy is a young widow. She's what I call not quite a war widow, because although she lost her husband during World War II, she didn't lose him to combat. She lost him in a pre-deployment accident. And so Grace is living alone in New York, struggling with her guilt and grief, and trying to figure out what comes next in her life. When she discovers an abandoned suitcase in Grand Central. Looking inside, she finds the photographs of 12 young women, and on the outside of the suitcase is scrawled the name Trigg. She comes to learn that Eleanor Trigg was the spy handler for SOE who managed the women that served that agency. And the book becomes her story to find out about Eleanor and the girls, and through doing so, heal herself. There are more chapters titled Grace, and soon we realize that there are two more women's names, each with their own recurring chapters. Would you talk about the structure of the novel? Certainly. My book looks at the women who served SOEs through three points of view. The first is Marie. She's a young British mother, a single mother, who makes the unfathomable choice to leave her young daughter and serve SOE as an agent in occupied France. The second woman is Eleanor Trigg, and Eleanor was inspired by a real woman named Vera Atkins. Vera was the spy handler, if you will, who was in charge of recruiting, deploying, and maintaining contact with the agents, the female agents. And um, Vera, after the war, when many of the agents had been captured and killed, went looking to find out what happened to them, as does my fictitious Eleanor Trigg, to find out not just what happened, but why and how they were captured. And then, of course, the third point of view is Grace Healy in New York. Now, I read in the afterward that you highly recommend reading the true story, the biography of Vera Atkins. One thing Eleanor insists upon is that the women know how to use the kinds of weapons they encounter in the field. And in addition to operating a gun, they have gadgets which bring to mind things James Bond might use if he were a woman. Please tell us about the gadgets 
And was there really a place called Churchill's Toy Shop? There was. That was from actual history. There were there was a place in London where they made and devised all sorts of gadgets for the agents to use, things with trap doors and different places you could hide explosives and any manner of things. And so the agents, when they went to these training schools, and in re- reality they actually went to about two or three or even four training schools pre-deployment, though in my book it's just one, um, they learned how to use these gadgets. And they also had to learn to do a wide range of jobs, because even if you were sent over as a radio operator, you might find yourself working as a courier or something else. And so they needed all the skills to survive. Where did you learn about these things, Pam? You know, it's interesting. The Lost Girls of Paris is my 10th book, and I've predominantly written historical fiction. And for some books, there's a dearth of information. You're really trying to fill in the gaps. But SOE and even the women who worked for SOE have been pretty well documented in nonfiction writing. And so there's actually a really good deal of material available about the true history. And this time, for me, the challenge was not finding the, the material but stopping and actually stopping the research so I could write. Wow. Tell us about Vesper. Is he based on a real-life resistance fighter? Well, let me say this. Even though I borrow heavily, say, from Vera Atkins, I always say that my books are inspired by actual events rather than based on a true story. You know, I I write fiction, and so I never want to stake too large of a claim around history because of the very great liberties that I take. That being said, my Vesper network was inspired by something called the Prosper Network, which was one of the circuits and one of the networks of SOE agents in France operating in France. And so the leader of that network, as he's called uh, in my book, Vesper is the code name, um, was loosely inspired by the man who would have led the Prosper Network. Ah. Now, one of the characters, Will, who flies dangerous missions for the cause, makes the point, there are people who have risen from all corners of France to help us. In what ways were some of the everyday people helping the resistance. Well, it's interesting, you know, um, the there were obviously partisans or actual people who were kind of in the forest fighting and fight, resisting the Germans. And then there were everyday people. There were people who hid, our, hid the SOE agents, as we see in the book. And there were people who forged documents for them and, and people who acted as drop boxes or, you know, places where they could leave messages. And so what was very mindful was, one, the French contribution was really important, and the French didn't want to see that forgotten, but also the way the, the French people put their lives on the line just by doing this. Indeed. In the book, Eleanor makes the point that if men were captured, they were to be treated as POWs, which included protections under the Geneva Convention. What about the girls? Was this true? Well, it's true that the women lacked the official status that many of the men had. And so, in theory, they would have less protection than the men. In reality, the protection that male agents had helped them very little because of Hitler's disregard (laughs) for the conventions of war. So the Germans had an awful program called Nacht und Nebel, Night and Fog. And it was a program designed to make the worst enemies of the Reich disappear without a trace, whether they were male or female. 
I guess when you're dealing with SS, they're not going to care about those sorts of things. Exactly. As the plot progresses, the action becomes faster and the book starts to feel like a thriller rather than a historical novel. A revelation involves learning that one's own government would willingly sacrifice its own people. Is it naive to think that this could not occur on the side of those who were fighting to make the world safe for democracy? It's not only that the governments could have done such things, but they did. So um, when, you know, Eleanor in my book or in real life, Vera, went looking as to what the, what happened to the women and how they were captured, there were many competing theories. It was very clear that someone had betrayed the agents. And there are numerous possible betrayals, everything from a jealous lover to a member of the SOE who thought he or she was doing the the bigger good, you know, for the group was actually doing good and was wronged in that regard. But there's also um, a pretty compelling theory that something much larger was afoot. And it does raise the question of the trust we place in our government and whether such trust is warranted. Yeah. Ultimately, why was the work of the Vesper Circuit important to the war effort? Well, it, it, the goal of all of SOE, not just not just Prosper in real life or Vesper in my book, but all of the circuits, the goal with which Winston Churchill set them o- sent them over was to engage in sabotage and subversion in order to slow down the Germans so that um, when the Allied cross-channel invasion finally came, it would be a little bit easier for the Allied forces. And even though these networks collapsed prior to D-Day in most cases, their contribution was undeniable. And there's a wonderful quote from Eisenhower about the role that these advanced, you know, sort of uh, secret groups played in the success of the Allied invasion. Mm. What kind of impact did researching and writing this story have on you personally? Well, I was amazed by the scope and breadth of the heroism of these women, you know, these female agents. And even after working with World War II for two decades or so, I'm just stunned at the stories I learned that I was not familiar with previously. Uh, So there was certainly that piece of it. And then just recognizing how timely the themes are in this book. Um, One of the people involved in, uh, there's a movie option, and one of the people involved in that has said that she thinks it's very much a book for the Me Too moment where women are finding their voice. Pam Genoff is the author of The Lost Girls of Paris. You may want to read it in honor of the centennial commemorating American women's constitutional right to vote. In a moment, another anniversary observance for Dad's Garage Comedy Improv. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free. 
And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. If anyone were to put 25 hours into a day celebration, it would be the clever people at Dad's Garage. The Comedy Improv Theater is celebrating its 25th anniversary this Friday, and here to give us some idea of how that extravaganza will unfold, our Dad's Garage Artistic Director, John Carr, along with the longtime ensemble performer and actor extraordinaire, Amber Nash. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you. Thanks. This is so exciting. Dads was founded in 1995 by a group of funny college kids. They wanted to make theater. They didn't think they could see anywhere else. How would you describe Dads today? Oh, that's a that's a great question. I think it's I think in a lot of ways it's pretty much the same philosophy. It's that idea of we want to make the theater that kind of makes us happy, makes us laugh, and kind of put on stage those um, images and voices that you wouldn't see anywhere else. And I think uh, that philosophy hasn't changed over the years. Hmm. Amber, you have been part of Dads for 21 years? Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy to think about that I've been doing anything that long. But yeah, I remember um, I was taking classes at Whole World Theater and I'd started also doing a few things with Laughing Matters. And I'd heard about this place, Dad's Garage, and I, I'd heard like it was kind of scrappy. And the thing that really kind of captured my imagination is that they were like, but there's no chairs. It's just risers with a bunch of old couches from thrift stores and you can get beer in a bucket. And I was like, that sounds like the place for me. <laughs> well, uh, things have changed. I, shall we say evolved quite a bit. Each of you has written an essay in this wonderful book, this commemorative book that is being featured as part of Dad's 25th anniversary. Amber, I can't say the name of your essay, the title of it on air without being bleeped, but I will say the gist of it is about how caring the folks at Dad's are. Is, is that a safe way of putting it? Yeah, yeah, kind of like, these jerks actually care about me is kind of like a safer version of the title. Or at, at least one that the FCC won't fine <laughs> us for saying. Right, absolutely. Yeah, and it was, you know, in the early days, it was very much a boys club. And um, so, and, and I was younger than a lot of the people there by probably about five years. And so it felt very much like having 
12 older brothers in a lot of ways that were good and a lot of ways that were irritating, just like it is to have real older brothers. And so, um, yeah, it's just a story about how how I kind of first realized that this really was a family and that these these guys were going to take care of me no matter what. And uh, and it's still that way today, even even though we're a much bigger company and there's a lot more people, I think at our core, that's still how it is. And when somebody needs something, it's like church, like the family really comes together and and helps out. Um, the people that are, are needing help. And that's really become evident too in, in the last few months with the whole pandemic situation going on. Like we've really kind of rallied around some of our performers that rely on gig work. And so it's really still a, a core part of, of who the company is, which I think is really great. That whole improv philosophy of yes and still holds very much. The essay in the book by Kevin Gleese, who is also your husband, Amber, and your predecessor as artistic director, John. He makes the point that there is not one thing that sums up dads. It's, I'm quoting Kevin here, it's only by harnessing the power of the group that the true identity emerges. And it seems that that beautiful part of the improv philosophy spills over into your everyday lives. Is, is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. I, um, I think one of the things that makes us so unique is that, you know, most theaters, they'll find a great play and then kind of get the actors that would, the best actors for that play in that situation. I think the thing that makes Dad's Garage so unique is, we find the best people and then find the plays that suit them the best. And so for us, the theater is all about putting our people first, making uh, this place a truly a place that's family where we support each other and take that philosophy of yes and, and support and use it in our everyday lives. <laughs> Amber, you mentioned that you were the youngest and also were you the only female or part of the minority of females? Right. I was at the time. There was one female that was before me as an ensemble member. Her name was Kendra Myers. And when I came in, she was just kind of leaving. Um, she had the good sense to, to get out of dad's garage early. I'm totally joking. But she left the ensemble, I think, to go back to school. And so I was kind of the second and I was just at the end of her time. So I didn't get to actually know Kendra all that well until when she came back later years. But yeah, so I was kind of the only one for a little while there after Kendra. There's a, a portion of the book in which you and some colleagues are interviewed by Aaron Wright. And it's a very frank discussion about being a woman in comedy improv. That's not always a funny subject, is it? No, yeah, it's, you know, it's crazy to think that in 2004, you know, I was only the second woman in the ensemble. That's, that's crazy. That's crazy to me. And I think that in the years that I've uh, had a career in comedy, um, so many more doors have been opened for women in general. And so it's been really kind of fun to ride that wave and watch and see how how comedy's changing and also like once our theater became more diverse and we had more women and more people of color and just more stories like it just it made our art better it made our our stories more interesting it made us more 
interesting artists. And so I think it's just, it's only, it's only good that can come out of having all types of people as part of your artistic community. Hmm. Talk about finding your voice. John, you wrote about Black Nerd in the anniversary book, and and you discussed the original pitch for the play that you gave. How did writing Black Nerd and having that performed help you discover your voice or firmly situate you in your voice? Well, I think for me, it definitely was a... Um, confidence builder in telling the truth. And in the book, I kind of outlined that I had a pretty wacky um, idea of the original idea for it was pretty wacky and all over the place and silly. And just having a dad's garage performer go, this is a fun idea, but you know what, I'd really rather just hear about your story. And that kind of changed uh, a lot for me because I'm, I learned about the truth and the true humor in telling the truth and how just expressing your situation and your ideas and your thoughts can be way funnier than trying to come up with a silly gag um, in a show. And so that was kind of one of those big lessons that I took away from that experience. And it's kind of one of the big things that I think kind of permeates the history of dads is people taking these kind of strange risks and doing something that is out of the ordinary and finding uh, some great gym that they take with them for the rest of their lives. Would you talk about the dark side of the room? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is an improv group here at Dad's Garage. It's made up of all African-American improvisers. And we take a uh, we take a movie, uh, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, all that kind of stuff. And uh, we improvise what all the Black people were doing while that movie was happening. And so it's kind of a fun sort of take on a... Um, on classic movies, but at the same time, kind of making a point about, you know, the lack of representation in a lot of the films and television shows that we see and having a little bit of fun with that as well. The original plan for this 25th anniversary celebration was to be very lavish. Can you tell us a bit about what was originally planned? Oh, it was going to be awesome. We had um, we had carnival rides. We we're going to have booths. We we're going to take over uh, the blocks around Dad's garage and have shows inside the building and outside the building. It was going to be great. And then the world caught on fire and we had to change everything. <laughs> so when did you finally realize that you'd have to make drastic changes to your original idea? Well, it was an interesting process because when everything got shut down in March, the assumption was, was that maybe this would be a month, two months. We're sure that by the time we got to August, everything would be kind of back to normal and we could do everything. And it was just one of those things that as time went on, it was just slow realization that this is going to be a longer um, event than we thought it was going to be. And so there was a lot of time where it was just like, okay, maybe next month will be better. And then getting to next month is not better. Okay. Well, maybe the month after that, and finally having to come to this point of being like, okay, we're probably not going to be able to do at very least any scripted shows in 2020. We're not going to be able to do any big events this year. 
and just kind of having to come to that realization that grasp I'm like okay we've got to pivot we've got to take that uh yes and approach to this situation and uh and work with what we got so whose idea was giving 25 hours to a 24-hour celebration i love it by the way oh yeah well it's funny because in a weird way it's kind of harkens back to our history because we used to do 24-hour improvathons and that used to do be a thing that we did regularly like once a year at dads and then we all just got tired of staying up for 24 hours and so we stopped doing them and so in a weird way it became this wonderful opportunity to um harken back to our history and say let's do 25 hours online and see if we can do it just like we did in the old days and put together some weird stuff for the early um late night evening stuff and put together some of our best hits throughout the years Will there be a combination of virtual live stream and the pre-recorded content? Absolutely, we have um, we'll have tons of live stream stuff, um, but we'll also be like highlighting some of our scripted shows. We're so uh, blessed that we did a good job of um, recording some of our scripted shows over the years, and so we'll be restreaming some of our hits like Wicked and. Song of the Living Dead and Rathacon throughout the the run of it, as well as we've got some wonderful video um, components made up from our community and from local um, uh, politicians and some folks that have just been helping us throughout the years. And so it'll be a lot of live stream and a lot of weird dad's garage stuff, as well as some pre-recorded stuff as well. Yeah, there are some pretty impressive photographs in this book, not the least of which is one very early on with Jimmy and Rosalind Carter. Yeah, we, um, it was, uh, I, this was actually a little bit even before my time, but having an opportunity to do 25 plays for 25 presidents and taking a chance and reaching out to the um, the Carter family and seeing if they come and to our all of our shocks and surprises, they actually came and saw the show and they came and sat in our seats and we got a, a chance to do a, an actual scene about Jimmy Carter in front of Jimmy Carter. So <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> I was around so, in those days, but I was still pretty young. I think I was maybe only just kind of coming as an audience member, but I remember, I mean, cause the old dad's garage space at 280 Elizabeth street was a real like ramshackle crappy building and to have secret service agents like stationed <laughs> at all the doors because jimmy carter was inside was just like it just blew everybody's mind like we just couldn't believe it oh that is so special and it, they they have a great sense of humor and an appreciation of good entertainment across all genres mm -hmm. amber as one who has been at dad's for now over two decades. Did you have a lot to say about which past performances would be included in the 25 hour stream? No, they don't ask for my opinion anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, there's so many incredible people that work on staff that are very co competent at putting all this stuff together. And so some of the older folks like me, they, we, they just leave us alone. <laughs> <laughs> and 
so now John's doing all the work along with the other staff members. John, that is that was daunting to say the least. How did you narrow it down? <laughs> well, I, I, it was interesting putting together a run of show that lasted for 25 hours. That was uh, <laughs> that was a a unique challenge. Um, but it's it. I mean, it's we have a great staff. We also have a lot of performers that all have a lot of ideas. So this was really just kind of a group effort of people saying, like, I have this idea, I have this idea and me taking all of those thoughts and ideas and kind of organizing them into a, a single show. So and it's been it was a cool experience because some folks had some really wonderful ideas of some really fun shows and then some people had some really half-baked ideas that make no sense and i'm like yes let's put that in because that is it wouldn't be a dad's garage show if there wasn't a half-baked idea somewhere in there so <laughs> there's uh so we got the full um the full gambit of uh, different types of experiences well you can't have carnival rides but i know you're going to have a silent auction yes. what kind of items are up for grabs yeah, we have a silent auction that's going on. And so there'll be a lot of memorabilia, some of our old classic posters. I think one of the interesting things is, you know, there's not a whole lot going on at the theater. So really um, some of the staff has gone, gone through and gone through our inventory of old props and different things. So we found some of those, but then also just like some, um, some t-shirts and different things, just commemorating some of the highlights and great moments um, that we've had over the 25 years. And so it's been cool, like getting to know our audience because some audience, you know, have been following dads maybe two or three years, but there are some audience members that have been around for 20 years. And so it's going to be a cool experience for them to be able to like purchase an item from a show that they saw maybe 10 years ago and haven't thought about in years and just remembering a kind of a fun time in their life. Mm, vintage moments, quite yeah. literally. When you were talking about dark side of the room and that being one aspect of dad's offerings, it is an example of how embracing dads is about offshoots. You know, oh. that you still have performers expressing their individuality yet within the group. Amber, you have huge national following with your work on Adult Swim, on Archer, but you all don't leave the dad's fold. What, what keeps you there? That's such a great question, Lois. And I, you know, it, it's, it's because it's my home, it's my family. And I feel like, you know, all that uh, fans kind of energy that you get from fans of a TV show is so wonderful. But when you can just go back to dads and be yourself, there's just nothing like it. And so I just feel like a regular person when I'm at dad's and it's just, I get to screw around with my friends and, um, and like John said before, like there's so much cool stuff that's happening at dad's and I can literally do anything there. If I have an idea, I can go to John and be like, Hey, I want to do this thing. And he'll be like, okay, either a, that's a bad idea. And we're not gonna let you do it <laughs> or B that's awesome. Let's figure out how we can, can make that happen. And so it's just such a fun 
creative home that I just can't imagine not being able to do. And the other really great thing that of course we don't have right now, but um, is having a live audience. I mean, it's what, it's what kind of taught me how to be a performer is, is the audience teaches you um, what's good and bad and what you can get away with and what you can't. And you just don't have that when you're doing um, film and TV and voice work. And so having a live audience is just such a, it's such a wonderful, special thing that, that I can always count on at Dad's. Well, just in the past month, we have had on Mark Kendall, one of the all-time favorites at Dad's, with his recent videos in response to our global reckoning with racism. Some of them made me cry. Others had me falling off my chair laughing. And we also had Matt Hobbs on talking about his puppy song. So, John, when your ensemble members come to you with ideas for themselves beyond the dad's rubric, I wonder, do you feel like a parent letting his child go out into the world, but making sure they'll always be able to come back. <laughs> That's, that is exactly it. And I think um, Amber said it best is like, dad's garage is a home. And so we want this to be a place where our artists feel comfortable, but at the same time, you know, if you spend every day, all day at home, we're like, oh man, you need to get out. And so for us, we're not just a place where um, our artists are kind of hanging out and doing stuff, but we're a place that we hope will be a launching pad. We want our artists to go out into the world and to represent dads and represent Atlanta as a city. We want to be a place that launches careers and cre really create a place where, you know, people start coming to Atlanta because of the opportunities that they have to, to make something big happen in their careers. And so... I look at my position less as I'm the leader of this company and I'm going to direct it where it's going to go and more as I'm here to support our artists and give them the um, the resources and the training and everything that they need to be the best possible artist they can be. And so for me, I'm always excited about people who have new ideas for dads, but I'm also equally excited who have people who have new uh, ideas for themselves because I want to support that and use Dad's Rogers resource to really um, help their ideas come to pass, regardless of if it's a Dad's Garage idea or just a general idea. Congratulations to you, to all of you, on 25 years of making Atlanta laugh and think and for taking us into your very familial ensemble. Thank you, Lois. Thank you. Artistic Director of Dad's Garage, John Carr, and longtime improv ensemble performer, Amber Nash. You can catch Dad's 25-hour anniversary celebration starting this Friday. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow morning at 11, 
we'll hear about the liberal redneck and corn teen comedy. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.